Christianity is nothing without the resurrection of Jesus, and it is everything because of it. That means if you're Jewish or you're not Jewish, and that's everybody, (laughs) the observances we follow and the laws we're under become anchored around Jesus. He becomes the center of our past and our present and our future, and he transcends culture, and he brings Jews and non-Jews alike to one table that he has set for us. Now the Apostle Paul, who we've been following through the book of Acts, he's no stranger to Judaism. And he's no enemy either. In fact, neither was Jesus. Rather, the thing the author keeps pointing out to us through Paul's life is that through Jesus, Judaism finds its completion. They're not opposed to one another. And Paul knows that. And today, the author of Acts, a man named Luke, he is going to go very much out of his way to show us that. So today, we're going to see Paul not only honor the observances of Judaism in his travels, he's going to show us with his very life how Christianity is everything because of the resurrection of Jesus. Past and present and future, Paul will hang it all on Jesus as he looks back and as he moves forward. So I'm going to read with us the first six verses of chapter 20. And let's look for the resurrection of Jesus in these first six verses. Okay? After the uproar ceased in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, He said farewell, and he departed to Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And so Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went ahead and were all waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Did you see the resurrection? Perhaps I read the wrong text. No, we'll get there. The first thing Luke is telling us here is to look back at God's deliverance. Now, what does that have to do with this text, which on the surface covers some boat rides and a bunch of people you probably never heard of, except for maybe Timothy. So let's consider some context, and that's going to help us find out what really matters here, okay? Okay, so there was just this riot in Ephesus. That's the uproar in verse 1. That's where Paul just was. And if you remember it from the sermon last week, as we've seen so often before, it was falsely pinned on Paul. It wasn't his fault. He went to preach the gospel. 
a riot started. Christianity was deemed as a threat to the local economy. They blamed Paul. He was declared innocent. That's happened a lot. But what's followed him anyway is continued pressure. Just because you leave Ephesus doesn't mean Ephesus forgets about you. And in verse 3, we find that there are plots against Paul's life. In fact, at this point in history, mid-50s A.D., there was a Roman emperor named Nero. And he would be responsible in the decades to come for a massive persecution against Christians. And he was newly in power at the time of this. And so these false allegations of Christianity's economic threat, well, they're starting to spread out from Ephesus and people like Nero are paying attention. So Paul's moving around a lot here and that might cause you to think, is he a scared man on the run? I don't think so. In fact, during the three months in Greece in verse 2, it's largely accepted that this is where and when Paul wrote the book of Romans. And most, for most people, that's their favorite New Testament book outside of the Gospels. And he wrote that under pressure in Greece. And beyond that, what he's doing here is he's rallying his fellow ministers and his fellow disciples. All those people I just mentioned, these are his co-workers, and he's kind of bringing them together. He's saying farewell, he's giving them marching orders, he's meeting up with them. Most of all, though, I want you to look at verse 6. During all this busyness, Paul takes the time to observe the days of unleavened bread. And this is a Jewish custom that directly followed the Passover, which we can gather Paul also observed. Because he just says, after the days of unleavened bread, which immediately followed the Passover. So after all that, after Paul paused to do that, he set out. And so I think it's important to call Paul's movement here incredibly strategic. He's not a scared man on the run. In fact, he's even taking the time to be a faithful Jew. If you're on the run, you don't do that. You opt out. So let me briefly explain these observances so you can see just how much I think they interpret this weird little travelogue, okay? First, the Passover, if you're familiar, was a significant event in Jewish history. In Exodus 12, where God commanded his people, that's Israel, to kill an innocent sheep. And its blood would be what delivered them symbolically from death, while God's wrath literally fell on their oppressors in Egypt. So you kill the innocent sheep, and you're saved. In other words... The lamb dies instead of you. Maybe you're starting to see the resurrection come about. We'll get there. Okay? But not only that, and this is getting to the days of unleavened bread, since Israel was called to leave Egypt very quickly, they did not have time for the bread to rise, so it was made without leaven or yeast. It was a representation 
of immediate and total obedience. The kind you wish your children had. <laughs> now, given all that, I don't think Paul celebrating this was him just taking extra pains to be a good Jewish boy. I think it's a lot more than that. Because I want you to consider what I just said about Paul's journey. Is he not unlawfully oppressed as Israel was? Right? We were just reminded of his innocence in chapter 19. I think Paul's observance here is actually the fuel that energizes his travels. He is remembering God's past deliverance in light of his, future, of his present situation. God has made him innocent just as God provided the lamb for Israel. That's what causes him to move. So, in response to that, rather than being covered by this dark cloud of danger and constantly looking over your shoulder, Paul sees himself as being led by God in the same way God led Israel in the cloud back in Exodus. Not a black cloud of despair, a God cloud. You got that? Because that applies to us. How does this apply to us? Here's how it applies to you. When the pressure is on, what you need to do is you need to look back at God's deliverance. Now, I'm worried about something right now. I'm worried what you just heard is that your main job when being a Christian is hard is to look back at God delivering you. I'm worried that that's how you're applying this. Now, that's not bad. That's good. You should do that. But here's what I find in my own life. When I do only that, when I look at God's deliverance through the pithy little 40-some years I've been here, I get kind of discouraged. And if I don't get discouraged, then my tendency is to look back at God delivering me and say, that's the point. God, would you deliver me like you did then, maybe in that same way without a struggle? Would you do that, God? And then my prayers become about me. Maybe you've done the same. And you wonder, maybe I'm not praying hard enough. Well, here's what I'm asking you to do instead. When you feel the danger of being a Christian, I want you to pick up your Bible and I want you to read stories of God delivering his people time and time again. Look at the big story. Don't just look at your own story. Because of that, it's not your job so much to pray for a specific outcome for you or hinge your faith on whether or not the deliverance happens the way you'd like. But your job becomes to be reminded through God's grand story, that the story is not about you. That's your job. That's your hope. Look back at what God is doing. He is the center of the story, and yet 
He is guiding you faithfully as a little tiny part of it. But you are a part of it. Now one reason I need to make that clear isn't just to make sense of this weird little travelogue. It's because where our story is about to go is it's going to start to get a bit uncomfortable. (laughs) And we need to realize that Paul is part of the right story. Because this is going to go to an actual narrative that involves death and later it involves a lot more danger. But all of it anchors to this central hope that energizes Paul the whole way. And I hope it energizes you. Let's look for it in verses 7 through 12. Okay? Look for the resurrection. Starting in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Did you see the resurrection? Eh, maybe. Little, at least we got a narrative now. Stick with me. The second thing, and here's the point, the central thing that Luke teaches us here in today's text is to be centered around Jesus' resurrection. So what's going on here in this little story? Because for me, I know that for pretty much my entire life, up until I started preparing for this sermon two weeks ago, here's how I read this story. Okay? Let me know if you're similar. Okay, so this guy preaches this really boring sermon. In fact, it's so boring that this kid falls asleep and he dies. And then maybe the kid is raised from the dead or maybe he just wasn't dead at all. Maybe they just missed it like when Paul was stoned a few weeks ago. And then there's some more talking and Paul leaves. Like, seriously, why did the last travelogue get no attention and this gets a narrative? Why is this here? I think it's because the center, this is the centerpiece of what Luke is teaching. And here's what I mean. Let me point out what's wrong with that summation that I just gave. First, I don't think that this is a sermon. I don't think that what Paul is doing, he's preaching here. In verse 7, it says, speech. That's it. And in fact, given Paul's trajectory, what he just did back in point one, he just went around and he's bidding farewell to people and he's instructing them on what to do. It seems that on his way to Jerusalem, this is another farewell speech. And it's one that this man, Eutychus, as a young man, simply doesn't connect with. Have you ever been to a farewell speech and you don't know the person? 
I mean, you can cheer for it and you can be happy for him, but it's whatever. I don't know this story. See, the point is the text doesn't assign any blame to Paul or Eutychus. Paul isn't boring and Eutychus isn't lazy. Instead, Eutychus simply grows drowsy, probably because Paul goes on for quite a while, and right in the middle of this impassioned speech by Paul to his friends, Eutychus dies. Now, this has actually been played for laughs in sermons that I've heard. Especially if you think Paul is boring here. But in context, think about this scene. Here's Paul, and what he's doing is he's working really hard to move strategically during this really tense time and he finally gets to this place where he meets with his friends and they break bread and he's giving this farewell speak speech possibly alluding to his own death and then somebody dies right in the middle of that. This is like a death right in the middle of your wedding. What do you do with that? Do you just cancel it? You're not going to bounce back from something like that, right? Well, Paul just raises Eutychus from the dead. Now, I know that doesn't seem clear from the text. I want to be fair. Because it says Eutychus was taken up dead. And Paul says, wait, no, there's life in him. This sounds like when Paul was stoned a few chapters ago and they thought he was dead. Is this the same scenario? I don't think so for a few reasons. Again, let's talk about context. You guys remember Luke? I just mentioned he's the guy that wrote this. Well, he's a physician and he's not just a physician, but he's Paul's personal physician and he's actually in this room. When you see the word we... In this narrative text, that's Luke rejoining Paul and saying, we. So a doctor is in the house, and a very good one. And he has just taken up Eutychus, and Eutychus is dead. Maybe that hasn't fully convinced you, but there's one more reason. I think resurrection just happened here. And that is where Eutychus fell out of. He fell out of the upper room. And if you've been with us for the book of Acts, that's come up before. In fact, if you've read your Bible, and especially if you're a Jew reading this, the upper room is very significant. It has very close ties to Judaism. Real quick, in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings Chapter 17 and 2 Kings 4, it happened. Resurrection in an upper room. And in the New Testament, in fact, just in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 36 through 43, you can write that down, Acts 9, 36. The apostle Peter raises Tabitha from the dead and she had been placed in an upper room seemingly out of expectancy by her Jewish friends who were waiting for a miracle to happen because Peter was going around and he was doing those. 
And even before that, if I might draw one more conclusion that I hope will not only underline this resurrection for you, but push the plot very much forward, is Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. Because once upon a time, in an upper room, Jesus took the first communion with his disciples, where he talked about his death and his resurrection. So let me bring all that together, okay? What has been happening here during this speech by Paul? Verse 7. They were gathered together to break bread, which means they gathered together to take communion. And so, in the midst of this impassioned speech, which is surrounded by death threats and growing social pressure against Christianity, what happens? Out of an upper room falls the resurrection. And for Luke and Paul, who in the previous point have explicitly tied God's deliverance to Paul's present mission, and for the other followers of Jesus here, who are centering themselves literally right here in this room around communion, which represents the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's deliverance takes a giant leap forward. Because here's the reality in the room. Death is real, but resurrection is too. And it's right here. And it's through Jesus. So what's their response to all this? In verse 12, they were not a little comforted. Imagine your child dying and then being raised from the dead. They were not a little comforted, which is another way of saying they were really comforted. I mean, really comforted. I mean, just imagine if you could have chosen your fancy going away speech to play out. Would you want it to involve somebody falling out of an upper room? Imagine if they would have gotten no awkward death here. I mean, let's take a vote. How many of you would like that to happen at your next important event? But what if resurrection followed? You think that aunt or uncle you've been praying for might get saved now? I think so. <laughs> They'd be a lot more likely. Imagine how much Jesus' work through Paul in the very life of Eutychus here encouraged these believers who just saw death and then saw it wiped away. And imagine what that does in the heart of Paul who is facing danger and he's about to head towards more danger. It would change the way you live. And I hope it changes the way we live. How does this apply to us? Be centered around Jesus' resurrection, I might add, especially, especially in times of tragedy. When death is near, look at the resurrection. 
I'm going to share a story to illustrate this. It was the best funeral that I've ever been to. Here it is. Shortly after my wife and I got married, her grandmother, Edith, died. So I mostly got to know Edith at her funeral. That's how I got to know her. And it turns out, Edith had herself written the entire funeral program. And she picked out all the songs. And she picked the text for the sermon. She didn't preach it. (laughs) She didn't get the Eutychus end. And it was basically, the entire thing was this gigantic praise of Jesus and call to follow Jesus. And it was packed with people who testified to Jesus' work through Edith. Now, it was sad because we loved Edith, right? But here's what made the funeral so good. It wasn't about her. It was about Jesus. And from that is an application I hope sticks with you. If Christianity is everything because of the resurrection, that is a legacy that you can begin leaving to people now. So my only question is, are you? And if so, how? So I'm not going to get trite with specific examples. I've fashioned it into your small group questions. Or if you leave, there's questions at the bottom for you to think about. And one of those is, how might you play out that legacy in your life? What might it look like for you? See, resurrection is the center of this message and this text. Death is real, but it's not the end. But it's also our hope, because right now you and I, we haven't fallen out of an upper room. We're not dead yet. We're not resurrected yet either. And as God guides us in dangerous times, that is our hope as he is about to guide Paul in that same hope. Death is not the end. Resurrection is the end. And that is what pushes us forward. Christianity is everything because of the resurrection. This pushes us forward and this pushes us into Very hard situations and very hard people. That's what's next for Paul. So I'm going to read the last 16 verses. or I'm going to read verses 13 through 16. And again, look for the resurrection. Okay? But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Assos, we took him on board and went to Myothene. And sailing from there, we came to the opposite day, opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Did you see the resurrection? No, we're back to a travelogue. What happened? We were getting all this momentum. Then it just died. No, it's in there. We'll find it. (laughs) The final thing Luke is telling us is to move forward by the Holy Spirit. 
Let's talk about context as we grasp for the resurrection in this text. First, I want you to note briefly in this text how it's different from the previous travelogue. Paul is moving quickly here. Paul is not stopping for three months to write any books. There's not much lingering from place to place because he wants to make it to Jerusalem, verse 16, hastening for the day of Pentecost. And in fact, to do that, he's skipping entirely over to Ephesus, which you might think is because there was a riot there. So I don't know, maybe don't go back. But it's really about Pentecost. He's making a beeline toward it. Why? Again, here's the connection. And it connects to Judaism. Pentecost is a celebration of God giving the law to Israel. Again, this happened back in Exodus. And it was this huge celebration and it brought Jews from everywhere. In fact... Here's the best part. You might remember Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. Pentecost was where the disciples launched this new kingdom of Jesus. And this led, by the way, to the conversion of Paul. And you see what happened on the day of Pentecost is the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles And they immediately began speaking foreign languages and they were immediately able to get the gospel, the message of the resurrection, out to people from many nations. So by hurrying there, again, Paul isn't simply being a good Jewish boy. He is going there to continue to build God's kingdom in an incredibly strategic way, let's go where all the people are, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But guess what? These are Jewish people. The same Jewish people that tried to kill him back at Ephesus. I mean, don't you think some of the Jews might be there, waiting? They probably will be. So if you think Paul's skipping over Ephesus to get out of trouble... He's going literally into the lion's mouth. But here's what's happening. Paul is moving forward by the power of the Holy Spirit and he's doing it for the growth of this unstoppable kingdom of resurrection. He's looked back at God's deliverance and that pushes him forward and he's centered his life around the resurrection and that propels him forward into hard places and hard people. Friends, here's what all this teaches about Jesus if it hasn't become amazingly clear by God's grace. Jesus' resurrection was Israel's past hope. Jesus was foretold. He was a shadow of that spotless lamb in Exodus who died so they could live. I mean, Israel and Egypt was as good as dead without God. And Jesus' resurrection was their present hope, right at the time of this writing. And when Jesus walked the earth, he walked among his people 
bringing life to them. And they tried to put their hope in the law, in Pentecost. And Jesus has come to say, I have fulfilled the law and this is why you can live. And likewise, Jesus' resurrection was not only the past hope and the present hope, but the future hope. Jesus modeled this in his own life as he pressed forward. Guess what he did? He set his face towards Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's going towards danger, toward the mouth of the lion for the sake of the resurrection to come. And he did all of that so people like Paul and people like you and people like me could follow him and be raised to life and build an unstoppable kingdom on the hope of the resurrection. And he did all that so we could also trust in his deliverance along the way. So how does this apply? Well, looking back on God's deliverance and being presently rooted in the resurrection, the application for the Christian is to move forward in building that kingdom, even if it's dangerous. Now, what might that look like? Because again, I'm worried. I'm worried what you might have heard is, let's just run right into danger. Let's just go kick down every door across the street. Adam, turn the speakers all the way up. Let's blast it to State College. Let's just do it, right? I'm worried that's what you heard. Here's how I think this applies. There is a certain wisdom in moving forward, and it's not just barreling into the hardest situation you can think of. You don't simply take joy in going against the grain for the grain itself. And here's my example. It's right in this text. Paul, do you remember in point one, when there were threats on his life? What did he do? Oh, he ran toward him, right? Plead with those people. He didn't. He went away from that danger. And then he wrote Romans. Here's why I'm saying this. Because Christians can become reckless in their zeal and they can think they're being brave, but they could be a lot more wise. I think Paul's concern, as Jesus's was, was maximum impact. Because you know what? Jesus avoided death too. They tried to stone him. He passed right through him and went on his way. And he left towns where they tried to kill him. Because his concern was maximum impact. What might reach the most people? What might yield the best fruit? Now I know that's not always clear, right? You can knock on a door. You don't know how it's going to go. It's not always clear. And that doesn't mean that evangelism slides from this reckless thing to a math problem. I think it's somewhere in the middle. 
There's a strategy to it. You look for evidence of where he thinks God is working, but then you go do it, and often he just kind of dumps your expectations on their head. Doesn't that happen? There's strategy to it mixed with an acknowledgement of suffering. So you go towards danger wisely, and here's why. You want to reach the most people with the most hope, but you're okay with danger because guess what's waiting on the other side of death? Resurrection. One final application here, and it's to those of you who are the object of evangelism. Those are the people whose doors we're knocking on. (laughs) If you don't yet believe this, or you're simply not sure, maybe you grew up in church, but a lot of what I'm saying is kind of different to you. I ask you to look at men like Paul sinful as they were, who fell on the mercy of Jesus Christ and who realized they were dead without Jesus. And I ask you to do the same and stop pretending that you can be good enough. Christianity is everything because of the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is not everything because of you. Let me close with the words of Paul from the book of Romans, which he had just written. Here's our hope as we move forward. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. That's what happens if you become a Christian. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's pray. Dear God, I often look back at my own life and I grasp for evidence of safety and I often want to make myself the center of the story. Jesus, you are. Your death and your resurrection are the center of the story. That has been our hope, that is our hope, and that will be our hope. Even as we go into danger and death. Jesus, would you help us to do that by the power of the resurrection. Amen.